You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 210. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com for our Your Stock Artake segment, and we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you again this week. We have a busy show. I will start out by reviewing Warren Buffett's comments over on the macro environment over this weekend, and we'll let you know if it syncs with what we're hearing, the comments we're getting from the CEOs of about 20-plus public companies that we've interviewed over the past two weeks. Aaron will review Apple's results released over the past week and what the market appeared to like in the numbers and the forecast for 2023 and beyond. Brennan tackles a viewer question on two oil and gas producers. It's Tamarack Valley Energy TVE on the TSX versus Pine Cliff Energy PNE on the TSX. In a no-holds-barred, drag them out, knock them down, old-fashioned bar brawl, something Brennan and his Saskatoon friends are all too familiar with. And last but certainly not least, Brett answers a viewer question on our Your Stock, Our Take segment. It'll be on Champion Iron Ore. CIA is the symbol on the TSX, an iron ore producer which owns, operates the Bloom Lake Mining Complex. The stock is down around 13% year-to-date. It pays a 3.4% dividend, and Brett lets you know if the current fundamentals of the business stack up. All right, I'd like to welcome, get into the show, my co-host, Brett, Brennan, and Aaron, the killer bees, Brett and Brennan, Aaron first. And uh, I butchered that intro, but let's get <laughs> yeah, to I you guys. It. How are you guys doing? Happy birthday, Brennan. Doing well. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, Brennan yes, had a birthday. Uh, he turned, what, 63 over the weekend? Uh, yeah, 45, as Brett would say. No, mm-hmm. uh, 29, 29. So slowly getting to that 30 mark. And yeah, I can't say I did too, too much over the weekend, but uh, a lot of golf. Yeah, or a frolf, lot of golf. as you call it. Yeah, or no, no, no frolf, no frisbee, but no frisbee golf. But uh, how's your yeah, game coming along, birthday boy? Way better than last year. I'm bombing drives 280, 290 yards. I think I even hit like a 300 yard drive yesterday with the wind, of course. But uh, it's just those approach shots, though, because you know, I bomb a drive and then I shank one into the bush. And mm. you know, you're talking about downhill drives only, though, right? Yeah, where you literally sure, just tap sure. it with a putter and it goes down a hill. And it just rolls. Yeah. That's actually that's impossible in Saskatoon. There is no hills. It's all just <laughs> This is this is true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, this is true. So those are true fire, drives, man. right? Wow, yeah. that's that's impressive. Aaron hits but, it to a two eighty in his sleep though. So Oh yeah, I believe that. He could probably bomb at three fifty. Yeah. You know he can, of course. <laughs> All right, so uh, do we want to get into the show? Uh, we might as well. We got a we got some busy topics to get to. I got some slides to share for this week, so that's always scary. Let's see if we can bring those up. So uh, over the weekend, um, I'm going to pose a question: Is Warren Buffett calling for an earnings recession? Now, I was on a panel about a week ago at an event in Las Vegas, and I was asked if I could name a couple of things about the market today that keep me up at night. One of the items is the possibility that corporate earnings could go negative in 2023. Now, expectations halfway through 2022 were for more significant growth than we saw in 2022 in terms of earnings for 2023, but they have been taken down about 13% from that time. So let's quickly look at a table on the S&P earnings over the past five years, including current expectations from this year, one quarter in. As we can see here, four out of the last five years produced positive earnings growth, the roughly 15% drop that we saw in 2022 due to the COVID shutdown is kind of self-explanatory. And the jump in 2021, that almost 50% jump um, as the economy reopened, was off of a very low base and juiced by the stimulus spending and historically low interest rates at the time. 
Now, 2022 showed more modest growth and the expectations for 2023 right now are relatively flat. Now, I said like in June of this past year, expectations were for more significant growth in 2023. So forecasts have been taken down roughly 13% over that time to where we look at flat expectations at at present. But the potential for negative earnings growth as the economy weakens is real. Despite this, as we can see here, the index uh, is up. The S&P 500 is up 7.7% year to date. And since it is up about 17% from its October 12th closing low, this comes against the possibility, like I said, that earnings growth could go negative in 2023 or at least on a quarter over quarter or year over year basis in some of the quarters in 2023. Now, Warren Buffett commented on the near term general economic view he's getting from his conversations with key management of the businesses Berkshire owns or invests in over this past weekend at the annual shareholder meeting. Buffett stated, and I quote, in the general economy, the feedback we get is that perhaps the majority of our businesses will actually report lower earnings this year than last year. He reflected on the widespread supply chain disruptions everyone has faced since the onset of the corona pandemic or the pandemic, he was quoted as saying it was an extraordinary period and that the period has ended. During that period, however, many companies, including those under Berkshire's umbrella, overordered and now sit on excess inventory that will have to be cleared out at more unattractive prices. So where does Buffett think the economy or the economic climate is today? For me, he's a great guy to ask this because he's speaking directly with CEOs of some very diverse businesses that he owns or are under his umbrella or he's invested in through Berkshire Hathaway. Well-known brands such as insurance giant Geico, BNSF Railways, Fruit of the Loom, uh, Brennan's favorite, Precision Cast Parts, Benjamin Moore, Duracell, and Dairy Queen. At his annual shareholder meeting, Buffett added that it is a very different climate than it was six months ago and where a number of our managers were surprised, some of them had ordered too much inventory and all of a sudden it got delivered and the people weren't in the same frame of mind as they were earlier. Now I can pass along anecdotally as well that having interviewed 20 plus management teams over the past couple of weeks, Um, I would second his comments. There is caution in the C-suite, which does not match the market rebound that we've seen to start 2023. Now, for the consumer struggling with inflation, the prospect for lower prices is probably welcome. It should be welcome. It's bad, however, news for corporate profitability, which could be bad news in the near term for the stock market. Now, Buffett went on to comment that we'll, he said, we'll start having sales at places where we didn't need to have sales before. And that's in the businesses under his umbrella, under Berkshire Hathaway that they own. They're looking at sales in areas over the second half of this year where they did not have sales uh, in the past. Now, near term, we see the potential for earnings expectations to be revised lower. I'll give you an example. After the early 2000s recession, quarterly EPS estimates were cut five consecutive quarters in a row by an average of 12% ahead of each earnings set season. Estimates were slashed six straight quarters by an average of 20% following the global financial crisis more than a decade ago. Analysts are often just too optimistic. Meanwhile, estimates for the second half of this year still call for growth, which, and we've really only seen just kind of what I'd call a paper cut to the uh, earnings estimates for the second half of this year in respect from, from these analysts. Now, for Q3 and Q20, uh, 2023 of this year and Q4 2023, analysts right now are projecting earnings growth of 1.6%. That would be Q3. And for Q4, earnings growth of 8.5%. So it's still growth they're projecting. Now, let's look at what we call the long term versus the short term. If we do see surprises in to the downside, essentially, in terms of corporate earnings in the second half of 2023, it can provide you with opportunities. Many market participants look near term. The market reacts often irrationally in a manner if they're staring straight at the near term. Now, 
this is news on a daily basis. You can use this to your advantage. We are doing this right now, essentially building a book of five to 10 names that we want to invest in long-term. While they may face short-term earnings pressure, the long-term prospects of these businesses are strong. What typifies these businesses as they are strong track records of growth here, strong management teams, good balance sheets, and we see a growth path ahead of them. If, as we expect to be the case in some of these names, the market overreacts to what is likely to be a near-term overall market shortfall in earnings, then we will take advantage of the declines and buy great businesses over the next year as they come what we would call on sale. Now, with a holding period looking of three to five years, and when we look back, having made these purchases at these opportune times, five years from now, we believe we'll be happy we decided to purchase these strong businesses with long-term views when others are selling with their short-term market view. So that's a short-term market view versus a long-term view and how you can take advantage of that in the market. Finally, I'd close with the long-term chart on the S&P 500. Over 150 years, this is the earnings growth that we've seen. The earnings growth trajectory is something we expect to continue with significant opportunities along the way. So I'm not betting against corporate earnings in North America over the long term. You can take advantage of some short-term uh, volatility, and we expect to see that over the second half of this year. So guys, you got any comments on that? Well, just, just a few things. I mean, one of the things is that I, I personally believe listening to conference calls talking to management teams is really one of the best ways to get a pulse on yeah, what's going on with the economy. Because these are the people that are essentially at the front lines. And you get a lot of really interesting information in terms of, you know, what direction prices are moving in. I mean, especially when it's an industry with a lot of different companies in it, and you get a lot of different perspectives. There's always the possibility some management teams can be overly optimistic, but you also, over time, get a sense of, of how to detect that. And for the most part, you're going to get you're going to get generally good information on what's happening in the in in their respective industries and just the macro economy overall. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, most industries, most companies are expecting macroeconomic headwinds, so pressures. Um, and of course, one of the reasons why companies built up inventory it is it's normal for companies to build up inventory uh, when the, when the economy is, is really heated, cause they want to make sure that they have enough product on hand to sell to customers to, to meet demand. But of course, one of the reasons why the inventory build happened in this cycle was because of the supply chain issues that we were experiencing. Um, now those have largely been resolved now, but when companies had the opportunities to build up as much inventory as possible, they did it because at that time they, they didn't know if they were going to be able to get more supply. Um, and of course, costs for container shipping, um, for trucking, for anything was, was, was going, was, was quite high, relatively speaking. So they were essentially building up inventory while they had the chance. Now those supply chain issues have been largely resolved. Um, you have pressures on the macro economy. So yeah, companies are built, have built up a lot of inventory and that has to wind down. But once that does, um, you know, generally speaking, then they start to build up their inventories again, and that that's uh, stimulus for the economy. Yeah, and you know that's the environment that they're in. They're normalizing. We've seen. I mean, I I saw a, co a couple of companies last week reported you know significantly higher inventories than than they have in the past, and you know they built them up. And while many think they can get off those inventories in a in, in a satisfactory manner. You know, there. If we do head into a weaker period, you can see them having to cut sale. I mean, Warren's talking about it right there. He's saying they're going to have to have sales where they haven't had sales in the past, and so it was an extraordinary environment. Now, if you're selling to those companies that have extra inventory, you're likely going to see some soft quarters coming up because they're going to sell off out of inventory rather than reordering and reordering. So it's something definitely to watch. The other thing is, like Aaron said, one of the best things to you know, gauge the overall economy is interviewing these CEOs and management teams. I think one of the things that gives us good insight into the general economic environment is because we're not sector specific. Like there's many analysts out there that just cover one sector, whereas we're 
looking across, you know, when we did 20 interviews plus, you know, there's probably two or three in the same sector. Many of them are just in diverse sectors. So you're getting, you may see some strength in one sector, but you can get a general flavor or feeling for where the economy is at any given point when you're interviewing that many teams. I think many analysts, fund managers do themselves a disservice by not actually talking to the investment uh, or, or the um, management teams of companies that they're investing in. Uh, you want to read through the conference calls. You want to look at those, but actually talking to them, you usually get a little more insight than just uh, reading through a conference call, particularly depending on the size of the business. Some of them don't have as much information out there. So always talking to them is something we like to do. Yeah, there was uh, one company in Vegas who essentially has a digital advertising platform. And Ryan did ask that, you know, macro, uh, are you guys seeing any slowdown? And they said that they haven't seen that slowdown yet. Um, so it really depends. You know, sometimes on, that's in their best interest. Obviously, and sometimes to that say is that, in their so best you have to interest. weigh that as well, right? For sure. As and you, you know, know, then we talk to another company, you know, that uh, essentially market makes uh, for you know industrial assets and whatnot. Um, you know, if a company wants to divest those assets, and you know, they're seeing strength as you know there was uh, increased uh, or they have you know excess capacity, I guess that maybe will you know won't be utilized. That they're going to sell off. So, you know, yeah, it really depends. And that's the thing where, you know, coming out of 22 calls, how do you balance it? Like Ryan said, there's really areas of, you know, strength and weakness. And again, like you said, it's, it's making sure that, uh, you know, they're giving you a good answer. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. even, even like Brennan was pointing out there in a down market, there is pockets of strength, right? Like, like he was talking about a company that's selling off industrial assets. Well, if you have a downturn in the economy, they get a hell of a lot more supply and they're all about the inventory, the supply coming in and turning it over. So, you know, you can find those areas. I mean, it's something that we've been searching for just over the past year is companies that are recession resilient. If you do, in fact, go into one. Um, and companies that can even benefit long-term from a recession. Because like I said in the slides there, there's long-term versus short-term. Uh, even if a company takes a hit short-term, but they can benefit coming out because they have cash on their balance sheet, they can buy other businesses that get distressed, or they just have a benefit like Brennan was talking about that are a business that benefits from a downturn. So, I mean, things that you can look at in a downturn, I wouldn't just run to the hills, not make any investments. Um, there still are great companies out there that you want to look at. And when the markets are actually off or down, that is the time when you want to buy. You don't want to look away from your portfolio at those times. You want to look at it more intently at those times, even if it looks painful in the short term. You want to look at it now uh, for where you can be three to five years from now plus. Okay, we can move to our next segment. Uh, Aaron, you're going to look at uh, Apple's earnings, I believe. Yeah. Do you have some slides to share? You just talked about, you just talked about Warren Buffett and Apple is actually oh one my of gosh, the largest yeah. holdings right now. One of his favorite companies. So it's been uh, one of his greatest investments over the past uh, several it years. It has been right. And we've talked in previous, in previous uh, podcasts about what makes Warren Buffett successful and you know, how really it, it, it 90% of his success came down to, what what really was it one good really good investment decision every four or so years so um and this this looks like it's one of them it does look like it's one of them so we'll get into this um apple just reported last week i want to go through the results and just take a look at the company um and the outlook going forward so apple is the largest company in the world at a market cap of 2.7 trillion beating out the second largest company microsoft and um, interesting to note, um, about 60% of Apple's revenue comes from outside of North and South America. So in what they refer to as their, their international markets. They reported their fiscal Q2s on May 4th, a nice move up in the stock price after the company reported. They beat on earnings per share. Uh, they reported $1.52, beating by $0.09, cents, and they beat on revenue as well. Uh, 94.9 billion beating by about $2 billion. So this has been the case with the mega cap tech companies, um, including Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, and Amazon. They all beat analyst expectations um, when they reported in the week before Apple in the current earnings season. Um, now, I tend not to focus too much on analyst expectations because, you know, whether or not it's relevant that a company beat expectations or fell short of them really 
depends upon how how good those expectations were to begin with. So it's very easy to game the system by being overly conservative and then saying, okay, they beat, so that's a positive sign. Um, it's 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 really relative here, but in any event, um, all of the all of the major mega mega cap tech companies beat analyst expectations in this earnings season. Now we'll take a look at the financial results from Apple, um, just as a as a on a nominal basis, or just essentially as they were, not in the context of what analysts were saying. Um, net sales were actually down about two point five percent. So the company saw a 4.5% drop in product revenue for the quarter, um, but a 5.5% increase in service revenue. Uh, operating income was down about 5.5% and diluted EPS, although it beat analyst expectations and we saw a nice move in the stock, diluted EPS was flat at $1.52. Uh, we can break that down by geography as well. Um, in the Americas, uh, revenue was down 7.6%, um, up 2.8% in Europe, down in China, down in Japan. Um, but rest of Asia outside of China and Japan was up 15%, $8.1 billion. And then if we look at this by product breakdown as well, iPhone is, is the company's largest product, um, up 1.5% to $51.3 billion. Mac was down 41%, iPad down almost 13%. Um, and then of course, net sales in total up, or sorry, down 2.5%. So although the iPhone was only up 1.5%, it's by far their largest product category. The iPhone accounts for about 54% of total sales, at least it did in Q2. Um, the second largest component is services at about 22%. So looking at how the market share of the iPhone has um, has been over the over the last several years here, um, we can see that that Apple has been growing their market share quite significantly over the past couple of years, essentially since 2019. So right now, according to CounterPoint research, um, the iPhone has about an 18% share um, of the smartphone smartphone market globally. So this is up from 17%. Um, this was as of the end of 2022, 18% up from 17% in 2021, um, from 15% in 2020, and then 13% in 2019. Now, the company's peak market cap or market share, mind you, um, was in 2011, 2012, which was about 18%. So they're right now, after um, declining from 2012 to 2018, um, they're now have been, they now have three consecutive years of growing market share, which is a good sign. And then some takeaways uh, from the conference call and from the results, the company did increase its dividend 4%. Uh, the board has authorized a $90 billion share repurchase. And what they wanna do is they have about $58 billion in net cash per share right now. And what they wanna do is they have a goal of, of getting net cash neutral over time. So they wanna return that net cash out to investors in the form of buybacks and in the form of dividends. Now, looking forward into the next quarter, the fiscal Q3, uh, they expect their year-over-year -year revenue performance to be rather similar uh, to what they, they did in the most recent quarter. So, you know, largely flat, maybe down a little bit. This assumes that the macroeconomic outlook doesn't worsen from here. Uh, they also expect foreign exchange to continue to be a headwind um, and overall a negative year-over-year uh, -year impact due to their their the high level, the 60% the of the revenue that's uh, from outside of American markets. The company mentioned the key growth, growth drivers for Apple are momentum in emerging markets and also growth in paid subscriptions. So we saw that in the product breakdown in the quarter. Um, if you looked at rest of Asia, it's only about $8 billion of total revenue, but it was up 15%. Um, so that was a net positive there in those emerging markets. Um, there are also other areas, though, where, where, where Apple says that the macroeconomic environment is negatively impacting growth. And this is in the digital advertising and mobile gaming market, which we would expect right now. Uh, they did talk a little bit about AI as well, just mentioning that they've been integrating AI into the products and their features for many years. A lot of these are very important features that, that um, help uh, protect people's safety, like fall detection, crash detection. So on a valuation basis, if we're going to look at the, the analyst ex expectations for the current year, 
the consensus is about 595 in earnings per share. That would be a year over year decline of about 2.6%, so say flat. And then at the current share price of $173, um, you're looking at a P ratio of 29 times. So what, what is our take? Well, we, we, we like Apple. We think it's a strong company long-term. It has a very competitive moat. It's been growing its market share in the iPhone space for many years. Uh, we will say it is primarily a consumer products company. Most people think of Apple as a tech company, and of course it is a major mega cap technology company, but it does follow a consumer products cycle. So that means larger swings in financial performance um, relative to software SaaS companies that have a lot of recurring revenue. So our next steps, we're just going to continue to monitor. We have no uh, near-term expectations about purchasing Apple. We have a couple other recommendations in the mega cap tech space that we prefer. I wouldn't argue with somebody who wanted to own Apple. Um, I'm certainly not going to argue with Warren Buffett about it. He knows the company well, um, but certainly there are some other names uh, that we prefer over Apple right now. Good. So do you guys all own iPhones? Yes. I do. I do not. Oh, it's dissenting. Yeah. Got a Samsung. That doesn't surprise me about Brett. You know, I had an Android years ago. Um, I went iPhone, Android, and then back to iPhone. And, you know, I can think of things that I don't like about both. Um, I just find the iPhone is just, it's, it's more convenient. It's just, it's, uh, you know, the, the Androids can kind of be like having a little mini computer in your pocket. You have to worry a little bit more about them in terms of, you know, data privacy and those things. But uh, so, yeah, that's why I have the iPhone. You know, they're very, like iPhones are so user-friendly. And I understand now, like as having debates and conversations with people, you know, who had like the Samsung, what is it, Galaxy S4, all the way up to whatever it is, you know, the platform's very similar, um, you know, each new phone that you get. But that is something that, I loved about Apple is, you know, my first iPod that I basically got, you know, 12 years ago, however long ago it was, um, you know, is basically the exact same, you know, upgraded features, but it's very, very similar, you know, just very user friendly. Um, you know, so I do like that. One thing about Apple as well, and it's going to be kind of interesting to see how the market takes to it. But from my understanding, they're coming out with a new uh, augmented reality and VR or virtual reality headset. And this is going to be the first new product line that they're kind of getting into, uh, you know, in I believe several years since the, the watch was actually released. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the market, uh, you know, takes to it. I'm not thinking that it's going to, you know, boost Apple's revenue to, you know, crazy numbers or anything. I think it's still going to cost about three grand. Uh, per headset, but you know it is going to be interesting uh, seeing them and as the a player. Does the headset run on its own, like just, or do you need to? I'm not sure. Computer? I'm not sure. I would have to do more research into it. it but like I just know price, that price point that it would run in a computer. Yeah. yeah, which would be interesting for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, reality, guys... that, that seems to be a segment that everybody talks about, but it's just never really taken off, right? I remember 25 years ago trying VR out and thinking that, oh, this is great. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna be big. And it, it just, it kind of disappeared. Then more recently with Oculus Rift, um, mm -hmm. people said, Sony's okay, got this a good is like the technology's there now. Um, but, you know, I don't know many people that use it a lot. I know a few people that have the headsets, mm -hmm. but it's just, yeah, it's just not something that hat seems to have developed that addictive use where people just want to use it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So you guys, I'm going to ask you, what, what, was, what was the PE guesses on Apple in 2013? You know, around the average and its low. It was cheaper it's, then. I think it was like 12 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, no, I'd I remember. Say what, what do you guys think? 25 times? 25? I'd say 12 times. Brett, I'd say I'm 20. putting you guys in the spot. So, like, its low was around in the range of 9, and, you know, it was up to about, you know, 10 or 12 in that range. Yeah. So yeah, how about how about in 20, 2016, 2016, so three years later? 20 times, 25, somewhere in there. Aaron, any guess? This uh, is three years later. Now, I, this is hard. I'm putting you guys on the spot. No, I, I think he's tricking us. And it's gonna, yeah, it's going to be way up, and it's going to be like 40 just because he has a game going on here. No, no, no. <laughs> it's still basically 10. 
okay. Still, mm. still basically ten. So it did go up in in like 2014 to you know 15 to 17 in that range, but down around to the you know 10 to so 12 what did range. It peak up then in like 2014, 2015. Well, I mean, it, it even had a, it came back down to the 12 range in 2019, right? But, but um, it started to really run up um, about 2019, like midway through the year, came down, obviously, at the pandemic, and then really ran up after 2020. So, so that you hit a range of 40. It hit share. 40. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the market share of the iPhone, that makes sense because it was, I was surprised because I remember it used to always trade at what was a fairly low valuation. Yeah. Then it went way up. So that must have been around like that 2014 time frame. But market share of the iPhone had already started coming down then, but it's since 2019 that it started to grow its market share at a pretty good rate. So it does make sense then that um, yeah, it's 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 crazy to see like it was not thought of as it was con- really being priced as a consumer electronics company with significant risk that you know that there could be a substitute at any point. Uh, or people would think, oh, the iPhone's not cool anymore. Let's not use it. But it's not really that type of business anymore. But it's certainly gotten a significant premium. So Warren Buffett got all the sales increase, all the EPS increase, the share buybacks, and he got um, a massive multiple re-rating from when he bought. to, And that's how you get an incredibly powerful run in a stock. You get a multiple re-rating, the outlook on the company completely changes from the analyst community from anybody who's investing in it and you have sales and eps growth and share buybacks and that's how you had a tremendous run in this stock so it's really interesting to see where it was and where it is today and how it's thought of and you know the premium that it gets today versus uh, that was a significant discount to the market that it was getting you know 10 plus years ago and even you know when i said 2016 it's you know we're talking about just eight years ago right in that range eight or nine so Let's move on to Tamarack Valley Energy, TVE on the TSX Pine versus Pine Cliff Energy. Brennan, you got your barroom brawl that you I that you almost participated in over this weekend at your birthday, I'm sure, with your buddies no. on the weekend. No, no? No, no, none of that. None of that. I'm uh, I'm a classy gentleman when I go out. You're a lover, not a fighter? Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So yes, uh, this year stock, our take actually came in from Trevor via email and he asked us, uh, for us to choose between one or the other to review between Tamarack Valley energy, uh, versus, uh, you know, pine cliff energy. But I thought that I would just go ahead and compare the two businesses. Now, pine cliff is the orange line here and Tamarack Valley is the blue line. Uh, but first, uh, let's look at, uh, Tamarack. So Tamarack Valley Energy Limited TVE on the TSX currently trading at a price of about $3.64, just over a $2 billion market cap and a forward dividend yield of 4.1%. Now Tamarack is an oil and gas exploration and production company focused primarily on Charlie Lake, Clearwater, Cardium and enhanced oil recovery plays in Alberta with production at about 50% heavy oil, 25% light oil, and gas and NGLs making up about 25%. And the company initiated a dividend in January of 2022. So looking at Tamarack's financials, which were reported in March of 2023, and this is for Q4 of 2022, revenue was up 74%, primarily due to an increase in production. Adjusted funds flow per share was up 16%, also because of production increases. EPS was down 74%. The company has a 12 trailing month payout ratio of about 15%, net debt of $1.356 billion, and a net debt to adjusted fund flow multiple of about 1.8 times. Now, moving on to Pinecliff here. Uh, so Pinecliff Energy Limited, PNE on the TSX, currently trades at a price of around $1.30, has about a $456 million market cap and a forward dividend yield of 10%. And Pinecliff is engaged in the acquisition, exploration, development, and production of nat gas and oil in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin. And the company primarily produces nat gas, which is expected to be about 85% of production in 2023 and the company initiated a dividend in june of 2022 so just a few months after uh, tamarack initiated its own dividend 
Now, looking at Pinecliff's financials, which were reported in May 2nd of 2023. So revenue for Q1 of 2023 was actually down 18%, uh, primarily due to a reduction in the price of nat gas. Adjusted funds flow per share and EPS were down 33% and 80% respectively. The company pays a or has a 12 trailing month payout ratio of about 36%. And they have a nice balance sheet with about net cash of 58.1 million. Now, this wouldn't be a keystone video if uh, we didn't warn listeners of the risk that uh, volatile commodity prices can bring to a company. And if we look at this chart, we can see that both of these companies are highly correlated to the price of energy uh, with Pinecliff uh, as the orange line, uh, Tamarack Valley as the dark blue line, and the light blue is West Texas crude oil futures. So you can see they are highly correlated to energy prices. So keep that in mind uh, if you do want to invest in this company or these companies. So I think this is difficult to compare the two because they really aren't you know, direct comparables, um, because one's focus is primarily not gas, where the other one is, you know, more actual crude. Um, but I thought that I would highlight both of them side by side anyways. So looking at growth going into the 2023 fiscal year, Tamarack is guiding toward better production growth, uh, whereas Pinecliff expects annual average production to remain flat or even come in slightly lower for 2022. So my thought here is that if energy prices do continue to come down, at least Tamarack may still post revenue and maybe even earnings growth for the year, uh, depending on how the increase in production and change in energy prices balance out. Now, Pinecliff does pay a better dividend yield of 10%, albeit at the expense of a higher payout ratio. Um, and Pinecliff trades at a lower valuation of 2.6 times enterprise value to AFFO. Um, but this is, you know, essentially expected given its smaller size and less growth anticipated into 2023. Looking at the balance sheet, Pinecliff's is superior with the net cash position compared to Tamarack's net debt position. But I don't think that Tamarack's balance sheet is by any means overlevered, but it is something to monitor, especially if we see, you know, energy prices come down. Ultimately, in my opinion, it is really a toss up between the two and might come down to a growth versus dividend income investment case. As if I was looking for income, I would likely go with Pinecliff due to the higher yield and cash rich balance sheet, but it just has limited production growth anticipated into 2023, which could be a bit of a concern uh, if we continue to see energy prices come down. But yeah, that is my uh, conclusion. And uh, now I'm going to put these guys on the spot. Which one would you guys uh, go with or or neither? Well, I actually had uh, the C I had a conversation with the CEO of Pinecliff around the time that we did the the dividend all-star report. So I did manage to take a good good look at Pinecliff Energy. And ultimately, we do have another company, a royalty streamer um, in the energy space uh, to get natural gas and oil exposure. A few things that I did really like about Pinecliff is one, that net cash balance sheet. Uh, balance sheet's extremely important with these commodity companies because we don't know where the price is going to go. Um, so if you're looking at the earnings, the cash flow on a trailing basis, um, that may they may not that may not have any resemblance at all to what the cash flow is over the over the next year. So the security of that cash rich balance sheet would be important to me. Um, if you look historically at Pinecliff Energy, they produce consistent cash flow even every year, even when commodity prices were at rock bottom levels about five years ago. Now, it wasn't much cash flow back then, but it was positive cash flow. Um, and I don't know what the management ownership is of Tamarack, uh, but I believe I remember that Pinecliff had a pretty good um, position that was owned by the CEO and other board members. So there was good alignment there. But I mean, in terms of, you know, which one would I buy? I, I'm not saying I would buy Pinecliff. I don't know enough about Tamarack to really make the comparison, but there were a few things I did like about Pinecliff. Again, it just comes down to that commodity price. Sensitivity is, is the major, major factor. And natural gas prices have substantial, I mean, they really fell off a cliff compared to the highs last year. Yeah. They fell off a Pinecliff. That's what pine they did. Yeah. Oh, I would say that uh, generally speaking, I would not uh, invest in an oil and gas producer, like a producer, not a royalty company, but a producer for the dividend. Uh, we've, I've just 
watched for 20 plus years, cuts, reinstatements, cuts. Um, it's, it's, it's not something that I would say that, that should be uh, part of a long-term plan is to um, continue to bank on a dividend from a company or businesses that are based on the price of an underlying uh, commodity. And uh, if the management team in an up cycle gets too optimistic, runs into a debt situation, and then um, you know, the commodity falls off, which it eventually does at some point, it's up and down, up and down, um, then they can get into a situation where the cash flow is really squeezed and they either have to cut or there's even worse scenarios that can happen with those type of businesses. So I just wouldn't count on a company like this for a dividend. Even if you see that ju juicy 10% yield right now, um, I'm not saying Pine Cliff specifically, I'm talking about the industry in general, counting on a dividend is typically or historically not a good thing. No, I think that's a great point. And even just looking as like I did say, um, both companies ended up initiating a dividend in early 2022 while we were kind of seeing, you know, we had trailing or higher energy prices, you know, so both are making the decision. Okay, we're seeing better profits uh, here because of energy prices. Well, you know, what happens if we do see the reverse energy prices come down, you know, there is that. And of course, it could go the other way and everything could be all blue sky and it could do tremendously well. But again, it is all really dependent upon the underlying commodity. So speaking of commodities, uh, I think we've put that one to bed, uh, two commodity-based businesses. We're going to look at another one here. A question came in on Champion Iron Ore Limited, CIA on the TSX. Brett, you're going to answer that one, so we'll let you take it away. Yeah, we're, we're just loving commodities today, but uh, <laughs> we're moving from uh, Alberta out west and we're going out east into uh, Quebec. So let's get into Champion Iron, symbol CIA on the TSX. It currently trades at a price of about $6 and a market cap of $2.95 billion, being down roughly 13% year-to-date. The company also pays a dividend with a yield of 3.4%. Champion Iron is an iron ore producer which owns and operates Bloom Lake Mining Complex located on the south end of, Labrador, of the Labrador Trough, approximately 13 kilometers north of Vermont, Quebec. Bloom Lake is an open pit iron ore operation with a mine life of roughly 20 years and a concentrator that primarily sources energies from a renewable hydroelectric power. So they released a Q4 preliminary release, and that is for the end March 31st, 2023 period. So they're offset by about nine months. The company had produced 3.1 metric ton, 3.1 million metric tons. Uh, wet metric tons of iron ore concentrate at 66.1% grade. That is a 41% year-over-year increase. This is on the back of Champion ramping up its Phase 2 expansion project, which the infrastructure was also completed during this quarter. And once fully, fully utilized, the company expects a capacity of 15 million tons of ore per year at the 66% grade. The company also reported it had a $79 cash cost per dry metric ton compared to $60 in the prior year. Cash cost was higher in the quarter due to higher fixed costs from its expansion of Bloom Lake production, as well as inflationary pressures compared to the prior year. So those are from oil costs, labor costs, those types of costs. Further, the company is looking to increase the grade of its ore concentrate to 69% through its direct reduction pellet feed or DRPF project. As of right now, the company has budgeted an additional 51, 52 million after positive findings of its feasibility study. The higher grade concentrate allows uses in the electric, electronic grade or electronic arc furnaces over gas furnaces, which have a lower carbon output. The increased grade in iron ore concentrated tracks a premium over the current 66%. The project is expected to cost a total of $470.7 million and take roughly 30 months for construction, which will put it in the second half of 2025, assuming it all goes to plan. The company also reported it has a cash and equivalent position of $327 million, which with the debt staying at roughly the same quarter as the prior quarter, we don't know, I'm just assuming it will be roughly the same. The net debt, debt and leases would be about $192 million. Once the full results are leases, it might be slightly lower as they're paying off debt, they're paying down their leases, but it would still be a debt debt position overall. However, as we love, uh, with commodities, they're fluctuating a ton. And like 
Brandon was saying for his last segment, they're volatile, and this has not been any different from oil to it is now iron. For fiscal Q4, we saw higher index iron prices ranging from about 110 to 130 throughout the quarter compared to 90 to 110 in the past quarter. But since the quarter end, uh, so this would be in April, we've seen it now drop to the low 100s, which is about a six-month low. So for valuation, using the fiscal Q3, so we're about six months out of the date here at this point, the EV to EBITDA is about 6.7 times. However, this is hard comparables because the fourth quarter of last year, so fiscal Q4 2022, it had very high iron prices, or about 200 to 220 a ton at that time. But the cash position has also improved during this time. So likely you're going to still see an EV EBITDA uh, after the full Q4 releases around still seven times. So if the stock stays similar, that is. The valuation is higher than what it was about a year ago, but that's because of this coming off these high, high comparables. But it's not absurd at this time. It's quite reasonable given the near-term growth that we're seeing in production. So in conclusion, it's had its margins contract severely over the past year. That's the risk of commodities. We see the iron ore price come down. We see the costs go up. So there's your margin contraction. But it's also had tremendous, tremendous production growth, and it will likely see another 20% once the full capacity comes online from the Phase 2 project. With additional value added from the DRPF project by late 2025, and it's reasonably strong balance sheet, it's not a bad choice if you want iron market exposure. But like we say, it's a commodity. It's going to have that risk. You're going to see heavy fluctuations over the next two years, regardless of how the company performs, and you can't exactly count on these uh, long-term projections that you'll see some analysts make. We don't like to do those. So I'll open it to you guys. Yeah. I was just taking a look at the analyst expectations here, and uh, for the current year, it looks like analysts are expecting 44 cents in earnings per share, down from $1.06 last year. So big drop expected this year, and that puts the valuation, what, about 14 times, roughly? Um yeah, I mean, it's a little high for commodity stock, but I mean, earnings are expected to then grow um, pretty significantly in 2024. Yeah, and guess we can look at those estimates, right? But I mean, we saw like on this stock um, or on just on the commodity, the, it was a, in a low of $80 in November and it went to by March 130 So I'm not sure how you can forecast any cash flow based well, on you, that. You, yeah, He's, yeah. It's so difficult. I, I know what you're saying. Like that, that's the estimates that are out there. But I mean, for us, we're analysts to look at that. How, how could we forecast? You can't even forecast three months out, let alone two years out on the business. It just makes it very difficult. If I was going to buy one of these businesses, I would look at the management team, look at their experience. I would look for a great balance sheet, uh, net cash, to because they will have to weather an inevitable downturn at some point. And then I'd look to, are they growing their production? Now, you know, you could check off some of these boxes uh, with Champion. Uh, net cash position isn't there, but I mean they do create cash flow in you know in good times. Now I would add to the criteria there is I would want to buy it in a down cycle. And the thing is, it might look actually like it has weak earnings then, but you'd actually want to buy it in a down cycle. And then when the commodity prices came up. And the, it may look more attractive than it might be a sell. So it's a completely different scenario and it's trading versus investing. So it's not something we really do. But if I was to look at a business like this, I'd want a great management team with experience. I'd want uh, that good balance sheet. I'd want production growth looking forward and that fully funded from cash on hand. And then I'd want it at a truck, like I'd want to see the market for the underlying commodity be a complete crap show. Basically, it looked as bad as it gets, and then that would be a time to buy, which is a really strange because you don't know how bad it's going to get. And then you, it's with only risk capital because uh, it could get worse, but you'd want to have that balance sheet. So it'd be looking at it totally different than the way we look at, I want to see a long-term growth track record ahead of us, reasonable price, pay a reasonable uh, multiple, but a good business. So, and, and sustain that cash flow growth long-term, which is what we look at for a long-term investment. So a totally different scenario here. I mean, it's interesting to look at, but very hard to predict. Like Aaron was looking at the estimates there, but we just looked at the 
the what steel did, I think it or iron ore, sorry, no, not steel, whatever commodity it is, to be honest, it's related. whatever it did over a six month period, it's just so hard. We have estimates there from analysts. I don't know how I would do the estimates on that company over a six or even a two year period, which is what we're looking at there mm -hmm. because it's just, you're dealing with a commodity that's going literally like this. Just to give an idea, uh, Brennan sent me his report, which was done about last year around this time. It was about $6 yeah, price. Like I think it was about actually a 602. And the valuation yeah. for EV EBITDA at the time was about half at three and a half times, somewhere around there. So same price. And it now is uh, double the valuation metric. And we probably, we decent chance that we'll have a ways to go if the iron ore continues down yeah. as we've been seeing over the last month or so. Yeah, interesting. Exactly. And I remember mm -hmm. even saying in that report that, you know, because we've seen, uh, you know, iron ore come down, it's got some tough comparables to go against, which obviously is why we're seeing the valuation go up, um, you know, just with that commodity price come down. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it was, it, it was an interesting business, like Ryan said, you know, they've, uh, you know, increasing uh, capacity, which is always something, you know, runway for growth, but it just comes down to, you know, that volatile nature of the commodity. Management can do, you know, we've said, said this so many times on the podcast and so many times to clients, but management can do everything right. And if, you know, the commodity price turns against them, well, the stock will likely perform uh, poorly. Yeah. So in your portfolio, if you like this company, like this sector or whatever, a commodity, it's a trade versus a investment over the long term because it's just going to do this. They also initiated a dividend, I believe, mm -hmm. in 2020. Around the same time, yes. While... Uh, you know, commodity prices were sky high. Uh, yeah. So, or I guess yeah. kind of back a little bit before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to, I think that's it for this week. That's going to close out our show. I want you to keep uh, smashing that subscribe button. If you're watching this on YouTube, we'll keep putting out the, um, keep putting out that content. I think we crossed the 2000 subscriber mode on there. So we're all pumped about that. Brennan had a party this weekend. It wasn't for his birthday. It was for oh. the 2000 subscribers. I know that. <laughs> Yep. Let's get it to three, four, and a hundred thousand over the next year, right? Let's do that. It's a goal. And keep your questions coming in. If you're listening to this on iTunes, uh, rate and review us on there. The questions coming into our Your Stock Our Take segments, we'll answer those on a weekly basis. And I wish you, as always, profitable investing. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.